This is the Push-Pull Factor, the podcast where we hear real migration stories from real people. So are you ready? Ready to come with me on a journey around the world, learning about the countries of the world through anecdotes, stories, jokes, and the everyday experiences of somebody just like me and just like you. I know it's been a little bit, but we're back. Took a little hiatus because I'm actually moving. So I'm moving back home to New York from here in Boston. And, you know, took a little hiatus because I was interviewing for a new job, you know. Trying to secure things for my big move. And if you're wondering, you know, if this will change everything with the podcast, it won't. We're just going to be based in New York, but nothing else is changing. Still mostly a virtual show. We'll try to still stick with the remote model, but we'll see. I feel like New York probably have a lot of studios and different things. So maybe I can in a post-COVID post-pandemic world have this be an in-person kind of thing but until then the show's just moving with me and growing with me but bringing things back to the podcast and everything overall where you know returning to our regular scheduled programming and still getting to know people from around the world and i have some really dope episodes lined up so i'm pretty excited we have a lot of people who are doing interesting work and either you know directly building things that benefit immigrants of all kinds or you know doing things with their work and their lives that directly benefits immigrants so you know, stay excited, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, because there are a lot of cool learnings and a lot of cool stories that are going to come your way and hit your airwaves. Why I'm excited for this episode in particular is because it's one that I've pretty much wanted to do since the start of the podcast. I feel like it's an immigration podcast. You need an immigration attorney, you know, an immigration lawyer. But I kind of wanted that double whammy where I had somebody who was an immigration attorney, but who was also an immigrant themselves. And I figured the U.S., like, it can't, that can't be too difficult to find, and Believe it or not, I found Kiki, and she's amazing, so we had a great episode, a great chat, and she has her hands on the ground, she's doing the work that I've been speaking about, and hearing these stories she deals with on a regular basis in her day-to-day is really one eye-opening, but two reminds me why I do this podcast, and you know, why I want to capture these stories from people, because not everyone's is the same. And she, like, elucidates a lot of the difficulties of being an attorney, you know, working with clients, dealing with an ever-changing legal situation. That was a big one. There are quite a few different moving parts that make it very hard, and we get into that during the interview. You'll really learn a lot. But her her niche of work within immigration law actually focuses on VAWA cases. And VAWA, that's the Violence Against Women Act, and it was actually a piece of landmark legislation that improved the community response for domestic violence in the U.S., which was a big step and a big win. And also serves as a bit of a humanitarian initiative within the law and also has been, you know, more broadly applied to immigrants, knowing that a lot of them can be in precarious situations. Especially because, you know, Kiki explains this a little more, but when you come on like a K2 fiance visa, that's the only person that can sponsor you. And they're, you know, they're kind of the ones in charge. So if they're holding that over your head, you, you can see how that can go. It's a self-petition process to get status in the U.S. and it's independent of your abusive caretaker or sponsor. And it really shows that there have been some steps to address gaps in the immigration process and the exploitation that can go on and just that it's a big lofty thing. So there are, this is just a fraction of a solution and it's probably not comprehensive. It's probably not getting every case. There are probably some that slip through the cracks. And again, with Kiki, what I found are interesting in, a, in specifically with VAWA was that she sometimes works with male clients and there are some specific challenges there that she gets into. And I think they're just really... It's just real, and I think it shows that there are issues that immigrants face that are multifaceted and deep and personal on top of the legal, you know, status, citizenship issue that they're going through on the on the surface level. And that, sometimes it's not even the surface level, because you can't really know someone's an immigrant when you're looking at them. 
So you'll hear some high-level information from some of her cases, and some of those tugged at my heartstrings, and I just, I know. Again, it just paints the situation that immigrants are in, and I don't know. I think it's a lot talking to some people one-to-one, hearing their story. Then you think of an immigration attorney. This is what she does. This is her life. She's also an immigrant herself, so kind of see both sides of the table, but, you know, a lot of focus on the immigration experience. And I think it's really important that we sometimes capture how things aren't automatically better once you cross the border. And sometimes, you know, an abusive partner, parent, whichever, boss, or just someone holding the quote-unquote American dream over your head, it's it's not fun, and it doesn't really make it the dream that you thought it would be. But I'm very excited to share her story with you all, and to get into it, so without further ado... Here with me today, I have Kiki Gaiman, an immigration lawyer with 10 years of immigration expertise, who runs her own firm, and I'm going to take it right from your own website here, because it says it the best, she knows the immigration story because she has lived it. How are you doing today, Kiki? I am doing fantastic, Aiden. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. I'm happy we finally got this on the calendar, and I'm excited to share my story and my practice with your audience today. I know, and I'm excited to hear and really get the immigration lawyer expertise. And I feel like it's an episode that I've wanted to do for a while. You know, a perspective that I wanted to get, and I'm, you know, very excited. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, of course, like I just said, you are, in addition to being an immigration lawyer, you're an immigrant yourself. So let's start off simple. Where were you born and then where do you currently live? So sure. So my, I always get a kind of like a gas when I tell people I was actually born in Germany. And the first response is military. And I'm like, no, um, my parents were just there. <laughs> my father was getting his medical degree. Um, and my mom was there. Um, she had moved to Nigeria, sorry, to Germany from Nigeria um, after some political conflict. Um, and so born in Germany, then I currently live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. But from Germany to Minneapolis, I've kind of hopped around the entire globe, but Minneapolis, Minnesota is my home now. Yeah. And then, so were you young enough to have memories and a sense of Germany, or is it the U.S. most of what you know? So Germany, I... I believe we left when I was about three or four years old, so I don't remember much. I mean, it's German was my first language, but I remember I lived in Sierra Leone from age three, four um, till uh, 13. And then we moved to Nassau, Bahamas. And I was there till about 18, and we moved to the U.S. just in time to start um, university. So you really have been around the world. Yeah. <laughs> So that's kind of been my track. So I feel like all my life I've been an immigrant, you know, just bouncing around based on, you know, where my parents deemed to be the place of opportunity at the time. But it's been amazing. It's been amazing. With your family, was there always a sense of somewhere's next? Or was like, I don't know, were you conceived and thinking Sierra Leone was permanent or that, you know, back in Nassau, Bahamas was permanent? Or were they always kind of like transient? Or did, were you really yeah. not? Did you not know? Yeah, I think, so Sierra Leone was, my dad decided to go back home. That's where he's from. So we went back to Sierra Leone. We were there for a while. All our family members were there. And I think the Bahamas was more, things in Sierra Leone were not looking too promising. You know, when you're thinking of your children and giving them an education and opportunities, um, I think my dad just deemed Sierra Leone to be limiting. And so at the time, the Bahamas was a good transition for us. But then after a while, Living in Nassau, again, he just thought 
there has to be more. And that's when he made the decision to come to the U.S. and, you know, kind of do the entire medical program again, start all, start all over, because he did know that at some point there was this pot of gold at the end, so to speak, you know. Um, and it certainly was sacrifice. It certainly was, you know, putting your pride aside and doing what you had to do to make opportunities and open ways for your children. And that's what he did. Mm -hmm. So when it comes time for you to finally, you know, your family moves to America, you're about 18. Like, what did you know about the U.S.? What did you expect? Did you have any misconceptions, do you feel? No, we had visited a few times. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because Nassau was a, it was sort of a subtle transition, right? So it's like, it's close enough to the U.S. It's not the U.S., but, you know, it kind of gives you that vibe of the Western world. And we had traveled, you know, while we lived in Sierra Leone. We've been to the U.K. So coming to the U.S. wasn't like that, you know, first time Western world. Oh, my God, everything, the buildings. I had seen these things before. I was really familiar. So coming here, moving as immigrants, it was like, it was exciting. It was new coming to live here. But I had no, you know, there was nothing really surprised me per se. Yeah, nothing really surprised me. So. Makes sense. Talked off air about this a little bit, but like coming to your own status, getting your own citizenship. I know you went through a few different statuses, but just can you highlight them and like what they mean? I guess what, what your experience was like to your, yourself as an immigrant? Absolutely. So we enter the United States as J2 dependents. I was a J-2, my mother, my siblings, because my father was a J-1. And a J-1 is a, um, for him, it was a physician exchange program. Um, shortly after being a J-1, I transitioned over to an F-1. Because with J-1 visas, there's a really complicated, once, before you turn 21, you're no longer, you can no longer be under your parents' visa. You have to, you know, switch your status. So I became an F-1 student and I started university as an F-1 student. Um, and I stayed as an F1 throughout my four year, um, at Kent State University and law school. Before law school ended, I met my husband and right before my status ran out, I was able to adjust status, um, once I married my husband. And so, yeah. And so my, I transitioned through two, what are typically called non-immigrant visas and then, um, adjusted my status through my husband. Okay, that makes sense. Seems like pretty, everything worked out well in terms of timing as well. Very much so. So, I mean, I will say there were times um, as an F1 at Kent State University when I thought, what's the next step? You know, because the idea with an F1 student is that you're here, but you're going to return. And certainly that was the, that was the plan. But after a while, you start to think, okay, do I really want to pursue other opportunities here in the United States? And if, if that's the case, I have to figure something else out. So it was certainly in the back of my mind, but meeting my husband, just it was serendipitous. It just happened, and it worked out. I think that's great how it did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with all of these countries kind of shaping your upbringing, did you kind of like bouncing around? Did you struggle with your identity at all? Did you kind of like... You know, you didn't, we weren't raised in one country singularly, but mm -hmm. how did that shape? Right. How do you identify yourself? How you viewed the world? Right. So coming to, so first moving to the Bahamas, um, that was an interesting experience because I found 
it was the first time where, you know, we got the questions, oh, do you swing from trees? And, oh. you know, do you... <laughs> do, yeah, we got that. My siblings and I, do you run around with monkeys? And I said, yeah, we have a hut. We have the biggest hut in the, you know, in the land. And just kind of a, kind of a you know, silly response. But um, I have never struggled my identity because growing up, we were always reminded and assured and affirmed of who we were. We were African, Sierra Leonean, Nigerian children. Um, and my mom had a very strong and fierce influence in who we are, um, my siblings and I. And coming to the U.S., I know at some point there was kind of this, you know, dichotomy African or African-American or, you know, sometimes identifying as Black. But ultimately, I see us as we are one people. We share a struggle, whether on the continent or in the diaspora. So, you know, trying to find these differences in who we are, I think it's more important to kind of look for what the similarities are and kind of listen and hear each other's perspectives. So not really, but, you know, we're evolving beings, right? So who I am today is not who I was five years ago. It's not who I will be five years from now. So I'm always open to learning, evolving, and just being my best self. And that's a good view on identity because you're always going to change. You're always going to be like a work in progress, I like to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, even I have three children, um, three boys, and who I am today, you know, three children later is not who I was in 2009 before I had children. So different things change our perspectives. They shape us. And you just have to be open to that process. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. So shifting the conversation over a little bit to your career and the firm that you built for yourself. So I want to start by asking, so was immigration lawyer always the career goal or is it law first and then the immigration piece kind of came into play after? So it, it was law first. So I've, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. It was always like, what do you want to be a lawyer? Why? Because I can argue. Because I can, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I can, you know I, can, I can spit the facts. So lawyer, 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 whatever. And then... Even going, starting law school, I didn't know that I wanted to be an immigration attorney. Because um, when you start law school, they tell you, oh, you don't have to pick a, a specific area. Just kind of go and explore. And frankly, that was really bad advice. But what happened was, going in with that perspective, oh, just kind of keep things casual, I found myself in immigration courses over and over again, right? Immigration courses, immigration clinics, um, and, and just kind of really driving in that direction. So at the end of my third year, I go, wait a minute, everything is pointing in one direction. And it may, and for me, I said, well, it's personal for me because I am an immigrant. My Everyone that I know, for the most part, most people that I know have that immigrant story. And it was a natural connection and fit for me. And it just happened to be, I had just kind of fallen in that direction, not even intentionally. So it made sense. It made so I just dove right in, right after law school. Hmm. So did you start just immediately working for yourself, or did you just kind of get I, familiar like, working for someone else? Or no, I I started immediately doing it myself because right after law school, I was pregnant with my first son, and I just thought I can't work for anyone because I need to be here for my children. I need to build my own thing, and it was hard because. 
starting out as a new mom, newly married, new lawyer, everything was trial by fire. Absolutely. And it's taken me 10 years to build what I have today. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of it because it wasn't easy. It wasn't Yo, easy. Congrats. That's amazing. Thank this you. Greg out of law school. You're like, mm, I'm going to do my own. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I don't, I think I don't, if I went to law school, I wouldn't have the courage to do that. I'm like, mm. No, I know. And it, it is, it's intimidating. It's scary, but you have to tap into that inner, you know, fierceness, that inner strength and certainly get mentors. Right. So I'm not saying I dove right in and I had, I didn't have anyone who was more experienced and more was, you know, had more, um, experience in, in my, in my, in my area. I certainly did. But at the end of the day, it still has to come from within, right? Cause you're not calling up your mentor all day, every day. You have to do your own research. You have to make sure that all your T's across, all your I's are dotted. Um, and you take responsibility. And it, that's why it's called the practice of law. It's a practice. You get better. Um, no one's perfect. And you just keep at it. And I feel like the law, I took like one business law class. I was very confused, especially in the contracts <laughs> section of the oh course. So <laughs> I can't imagine practicing it on a day-to-day. Listen, I went to law school and I'm licensed and there were certain courses like property and the rules of perpetuities. I, if you were to show, give me that, that show me something, I couldn't tell you because it's, it's, it makes no sense. It's not practical. No one uses that anymore, but for some reason they still find it, um, you know, they, they, they think it needs to be part of the course. I don't know if it's like a hazing process, but <laughs> <laughs> I, there's actually a meme that goes around on, on social media and it's like rules of perpetuities, something like that. Or the, and it's just kind of like essentially just making fun of certain concepts in our legal academia that are just, they just throw you for a loop. So don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. No, I, I, I know things can be lofty. Like it's, it's meant to be that way. Right. It is. It certainly is. So it's all good. So still kind of keeping on that same topic, what do you think are some of like the intricacies of the immigration system in the U.S. that like make it so difficult or hard for people to understand? Oh, man, a lot. So I'll start with, so first of all, um, apparently immigration law is the second hardest area of U.S. federal law, second to tax. Um, I think the immigration process is really, it's daunting and the laws are just, a lot of them are not practical. And they're, um, they make it, they just make it difficult for people to get here. The, I think the idea is to keep people out, right? And if you're able to get through, then you've really accomplished, it's no small feat. Um, the laws in themselves are not, they're not meant for a lay person to interpret. And that's why a lot of times I tell prospective clients, I say, certainly your cousin's uncle's mother got her <laughs> green card and she, <laughs> she filed it on her own. Good for her, right? Good for her. I said, but what, what, you, what you don't want to do is go through this process, spend all that money, waste all that time. And at the, other, and, and, and at the end of that, you, you, there's nothing for you because you've missed a deadline. You've missed an important document. You've missed something on your application and you have to start all over again. Now you've lost time that you can never get back. And so um, 
I think there's a lot of bureaucracy also with immigration. There's all the policies, the policies that are a lot of times marred with, you know, um, keeping certain immigrants out or making it a lot more difficult for immigrants of a certain ethnic, cultural, or skin color, right? Keeping them, making the process a lot more tedious for them. So there, it's, it, there's so many, there are layers to our immigration system. Um, and that's why, you know, when we look at the bills that are kind of being pushed through Congress right now, we're hoping that it makes, you know, immigrants like the Dreamers, it makes it easier for them to get a path to citizenship because Dreamers, for all intents and purposes, they're Americans. They came here when they were children, not on their own volition. They were brought here by adults. Why punish them when this is all they have ever known? So... To answer your question, there are layers. There are layers and um, a lot of them intentional to keep a lot a lot of people out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important point to bring up. It's like very, very layered, very, very. structural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And the idea I think now um, is that you know, we get our government and our politicians and our policymakers to see that keeping our immigration laws as rigid and as, you know, um, difficult as they are, it only hurts us as a country, right? Because this country was built on the backs of immigrants. It really was. And so opening things up a bit, and I'm not saying just throw open the borders. No one can, you know, no one does that. And I don't think that's good for the country either, but we have to find a middle ground that's workable. And I think what we've had in the last 20, 30 years has not been, it, ha- it hasn't been efficient. Mm-hmm. So do you think for solutions, do you think it's all federal legislation or do you think like local legislation that things are, that can be done like on a citywide that can still make things easier? Well, so immigration law is federal, right? So it's federal. And so as far as like, you know, enacting policies, that's the level that that's at. But I think on the state level, there was a time when, um, you know, there were sanctuary cities where local officials were like, we're not enforcing your, your ICE raids coming into our cities and terrorizing people and immigrants and things like that. So the cities that were courageous and hard and had humanity and had heart to do that that's i mean those are the ways in which i think local officials can help out um and so but then you also had cities that were enforcing and they were deputizing you know police officers if you were pulled over and they found out that you were undocumented you were sent they were calling ice so there were two parts of the of the sort essentially some cities that were very you know they, they they showed humanity and others that did not, yeah. That makes sense. And with these ever-changing laws, like, is there a requirement for continuing education with immigration attorneys or certifications? Like, personally, what do you do to stay informed and, like, you know, communicate those changes to your clients? Oh, God, yes. So there are requirements for continuing legal education for all attorneys, um, except, wait a minute, I think there are some states that don't have that, like Boston, and I was actually pretty shocked to hear that they're not required to take CLEs, but in Minnesota, for sure, we're, um, we're, we are required to do CLEs, and for me, with a, just a, an immigration practice, that's all I really focus on, are my immigration CLEs, because we do have to stay abreast, right? We have to stay on top of things, because it's always changing, there's always something new, there's always a tweak, and the way I 
pass that on to my prospective clients and current clients is through, I do a lot of videos on Instagram. I put out a lot of videos and content on Facebook, sometimes on LinkedIn, because really everyone is on social media. And if you're not on social media, then I don't know what you're doing. But <laughs> social media is where everyone um, consumes their content for different things. And I find that a lot of my clients um, are on there and, and they're, you know, I'm keeping them updated and keeping them educated by putting out content through video. And um, I do a lot of just like posts with information that could be helpful and useful to them. And I feel like that's very major. You never know what kind of gem you can come across. Even from a podcast perspective, one of those podcast lawyer Instagram pages really, you know, made me do a content form, made me do these little things. So I feel like the awareness aspect is so big because people Absolutely. don't know a lot of the law. Oh, yes, absolutely. You'll be amazed. I mean, I think before access to information was, it was difficult to get access to information, but now everyone has a phone. I mean, everyone has a cell phone. My 90-year-old grandmother has a cell phone, right? No, she does. She does. And she's in Nigeria. And so you can log in and, you know, Facebook, Instagram, whatever platform works for you, and you can access information. And so what better way to get it to these people who otherwise wouldn't get it than just put out as much information as you possibly can. And hashtagging, so if someone's looking for a green card or a B1, B2 visa, which is a visitor's visa or an F1, a student visa, I hashtag student visa, green card, visitor's visa, and that's how they find the content that's relevant for them. You know, when I'm looking, when I'm searching on, you know, Instagram for content, I put in, you know, makeup artist, Minnesota, whatever, you know, and, and it pops up what I'm looking for pops up. So it's, it's genius. And it's, it's, it's very, um, it, it does what it needs to do. So with that, like you go on social media, can clients all over the world or all over the country work with you? Or do they have to be based in Minnesota? Are we settling in Minnesota mainly? No. So I have clients all over the United States. I mean, from California, New York, D.C., South Dakota, because immigration law is federal, and so I can represent anyone in any state. The only the only cases I don't really, I don't love taking are if they have a court matter in their city or their state, because then there, there's added expense. They have to fly me out there, you know, and so um, even though there are kind of ways around that where you can have another attorney represent, um, do that limited rep appearance for you in court, but I typically try to avoid those and focus on just matters that are not in court um and any any state i can handle any state okay that's cool i thought i don't know law has like the bar and stuff so i don't know all the legal requirements for but that's cool you can yeah be in the whole country yeah so there if the area of law is like you know state law so like contracts or family law or something like that you would have to be licensed in minnesota and be here for me to represent you I don't do those those errors of law, but I'm just saying. But immigration, all of it, because it's federal, so we go across state lines. So getting more into your work in the nitty-gritty, you work with a particularly vulnerable population of immigrants, those who may be victims of domestic abuse or just other kinds of violence from their partners or their families or their, their situations. So I guess starting, how did you identify this as something you wanted to work in? Right. So I remember I always tell the story of my first um, case that had to do with a survivor of abuse. Um, he was a gentleman that came to my office, just broken down and just, he was at his last stop. And he had come here as a fiance, uh, on a fiance visa, had married his wife and things had fallen apart. 
And just to give, a little, give it a little background, when you come here as a fiance on a fiance visa, that's the only, the person that brings you here is the only person you can, you know, get a green card through. So if it doesn't work out, you're done. You have to go back to your home country. You're not able to marry another U.S. citizen and get status. It's a very, it has a really tricky um, nuance. Yeah. But this man came to my office. I mean, he started telling me his story. The wife had been physically abusive, verbally abusive, emotionally, mentally. I mean, the, he was just completely, completely broken down pieces. And so I said, I have to help you. So I started researching what his options were. Quickly, I realized you're kind of, you're stuck. And then in doing my research, I discovered VAWA. And I was in my maybe third year of practice. Um, and so I said, I think we have something here. So I dealt deeper. I was able to put a solid petition for him. Um, but in going through putting that petition together, there was a lot of pain, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Um, and so essentially what VAWA does is it allows spouses of either United States citizens or green card holders, also known as legal permanent residents, to self-petition on their own when there has been physical abuse, emotional, psychological, that has risen to a level of like extreme cruelty. And extreme cruelty basically means repeated pattern of power and control, dehumanizing, demeaning, terror, threats over and over and over again. Um, and so that was my, and, and once I, when I won that case, and it was difficult because it was a man. And, you know, there are cultural aspects that would dictate that men are not victims of domestic violence, and that is not true. Um, and so I was able to liberate. I, I, I see myself as I, I empower, uplift, and I liberate survivors of abuse because they need it. They need it. And so that's how I, that's how I found this as my niche because I'm able to bring down walls because when they come to me, they're, they're, they're beat up, but then they're, they're, they don't trust anyone, right? They don't trust anyone. Their walls up. They've been disappointed. Um, they've been hurt. And so I'm able to kind of just break those walls down and, and create a space of trust, a safe space. And I found that I could do that very effectively. And um, at the end of the process, they trust me so much. And they say, you changed my life. And that meant a lot to me. That sounds that very fulfilling. It's like amazing work because already immigrants are in such a precarious position and just already vulnerable. So I'm just adding the situation of those you serve on top of it, it's just much more difficult. Absolutely. And those are the two words, precarious and vulnerable. They are so vulnerable. And what, what pains me so much is by the time they come to me, I have a lot of clients who say, I have been with this person for 10 years, for five years, and they've taken all my money and they're constantly threatening to call immigration and they've, they've submitted the petition, but they're sitting on it or they haven't submitted and they're constantly dangling this paper in front of me and telling me that they're my only key or only way to um, legal status here. I mean, I have cases of sexual assault and, um, you know, just the gaslighting, the, the emotional and when I tell them that you could have left, you know, 10 years and five years ago, they're just completely flabbergasted. And they go, really? And I go, yes, but 
you are here now so let's get this process started that's good so more on that how how do the victims have to prove this hardship and just you know provide you know validation because i'm sure there's some kind of legal burden to show that you know it's repeating and you know it's dangerous so how does that go about and is is it difficult at times when the courts aren't working with you or this you know the evidence is if you're to i guess tackle down or confirm yeah so the way the vala process works it's for one, it's 100% confidential, right? So the, the the survivors coming to me and they're telling me their story. So there are elements that you have to meet. So at first, you have to have a qualifying relationship and that's either married to a U.S. citizen or a green card holder. There are two other um, qualifying um, uh, uh, personas. Um, you can also qualify for VAWA if you have a child that's a U.S. citizen and at least 21 years old. And as a parent, the child is abusive. They're just rude. And not, not just rude, but like, you know, physically, verbally, emotionally, because I see a lot of those also. And also if you're a child under 21 and your parent, either a U.S. citizen or a green card holder, has been abusive to you. But I'll say 90% of my cases are in that first category of spouses, right? Husband, wife, 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 husband, husband. Um, so you have to show that relationship, married to USC or green card holder. You have to show that your marriage was in good faith. And in the immigration language, good faith just means that your marriage was, you entered into it legitimately, not just, you didn't enter into it like, okay, I'm going to get my papers. It was like, I love this person. I want to be with them, have a life together. And then things fell apart. Um, you have to have lived with the abuser at some point. Um, there are two exceptions to that. If you're out of the country, that either your spouse is a um, works for the U.S. government or um, the is in the military, um, or the abuse happened in the United States, but now you're out of the country, and you have to show that you have good moral character. And so, in immigration context, good moral character essentially means that you know you haven't committed any crime that speaks to bad conscience. So, a decent person. Um, so, though, and then of course we have to prove that there has been abuse and in proving abuse, it's really any documentation you can provide an affidavit, a declaration, a psychological assessment is huge because that's where as the survivor, you're able to tell a mental health professional what has happened and they're able to assess you a lot of times, um, cause VAWA require, does not require physical abuse. If you have physical abuse, certainly we can talk about that, but it isn't just, it's not just physical, it's emotional or physical. And it's not a, it's not a matter of, oh, we'll take your testimony and then go ask them. No, it is a hundred percent the survivor's story. And that's what we submit. And specifically with your cases, where does the complexity kind of come in? I know something, sometimes you probably just file and it works out, or is it just like appeals, rebuttals, confirming all of the paperwork, aligning everything? Like, where does it really get difficult, you think? So, and it's funny you ask that because right now there are some cases that are, that essentially highlight some of the difficulties that we encounter. So a lot of it is cultural, I think. One, with men, right? So I run into issues with men where... I'm trying to build their case. I'm trying to put a solid, winnable case together. But they're struggling with sharing what their abuse and what their story has been. And I have to remind them, I understand this is painful. This is trauma. 
do not feel emasculated that you've been through this and getting them to talk. Um, and in that same breath, when I submit cases based on male survivors um, of abuse, a lot of times USCIS sends me back something called an RFE, which is a request for evidence, essentially saying, well, we don't think there's enough abuse here. Tell me more. Yeah. Absolutely. And I almost always have to send back a scathing response and reminding them that um, we, the standard is basically any credible evidence, which is a much lower standard, is because they understand that a lot of times survivors of abuse don't have access to information. And I and I call out and I call out the the sexism. I say you're only saying this because my client is a man. And typically, we get an approval back. <laughs> I love that. So, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um. So that those are some. So that's kind of one area of difficulty. Another area of difficulty I have is when and I'm and I have a client that I'm struggling with right now is where they come to me. They're ready to go. And then they call me, I don't think I want to move forward with this. He came over yesterday, whatever. And I, and I always tell them, this is your decision. It is your decision. It is your call whether or not you want to move forward with this. But do know that you can still stay with your abuser and petition for your, and, and do a self-petition. That's another misconception. They think if they go back to their abuser, their petition fails. And that's not true because the Congress in enacting this provision, they understand the cycle of abuse. Going back is part of that cycle. And so it does not invalidate your experience and your trauma and what you've been through. It's just, it's part of the process. And so if you choose to go back for whatever reason, you have children, I don't know, you can do that, but do know that we can follow through with your petition. It's confidential. And at the end of this, you'll have that liberty to stay or leave because now you have your green card. So I kind of have to walk them through that process. Yeah. That's kind of, I'm kind of impressed that they thought through that, like incorporated that. Oh, in. yes. Oh, absolutely. And I, because I think, because VAWA, it's a humanitarian relief, right? So it's, you know, people that have really suffered and have not been treated, you know, as humans, essentially. And no one should have to live like that. And so it's a provision that really tries to stop any, you know, mal maltreatment, abuse, dead in its tracks. And I think they weighed, you know, what the benefit is in 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 moving in in, in liberating this person or these people versus oh, going back and asking, did this really happen? Asking the abuser because it's dangerous. It's very very dangerous for these for for these survivors, right? And so. Um, I think Congress, in enacting this provision, they just decided, you know what, as long as they can show that they are married to this person, because when you when you marry a U.S. citizen or green card holder, typically they submit a petition for you. I mean, that's kind of what happens. So the fact that that has not happened tells them that there's something else happening here. So it makes sense, right? Because if someone really, yes, yeah, so if someone really wanted you to stay here and have legal status, they would file for you. How have they you be been? Call, they be calling every day. <laughs> right, exactly. How have they? How have you been married to this person for five years and you still have no legal status? There's something here, and I think there's, and I think they thought there's some, there's enough here that we're taking your word for it. Just show us, just meet these elements with evidence, and 
and we're just going to roll with it. It makes sense. It makes sense. So just to put into perspective, one of your typical VAWA cases, how long would it take, like, end-to-end from, like, initial consultation to, not sure what the final resolution is, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a VAWA case typically anywhere from 15 months to two years. That's pretty... I would say, actually, 18 months to two years is probably more accurate. Um, and that's because how the process works is, typically, a lot of my clients are married to U.S. citizens. I have green card holder spouses too, but we would submit your petition, your your self-petition and your green card application and a work authorization and a travel document. You'll get your work authorization in about five to six months. You know, you can work. You're starting to kind of get out of this dependency. Life goes on. Um, they, they're processing your, they first they process the self-petition. That's the th- I-360. Don't worry about the numbers. All we do is alphabet soups and numbers, but the, the, the self-petition is called, <laughs> right, the self-petition is the I-360. That gets, the, we typically get a decision on that maybe nine months, nine months later. And then they schedule the client for an actual interview, um, I would say another nine to 12 months from that first approval of the self-petition. Now, the interview is more for the green card piece. That's called the adjustment of status. Um, that's where they call us in and there's an immigration officer that goes through to make sure that this client does not have any inadmissible issues, right? Nothing prevents them from actually getting a green card, crimes, past history, and things like that. Okay. So you've been doing this for about 10 years now. I want to know, how has your work changed over time? And as we go through administrations, different laws change, on top of that, the world... You know, the world's still going on, things that happen that still drive migration happening, the pandemics happen. So like have the countries of your clients changed, the nature of your cases? I'm curious about that. Yeah, so I will say in the last four years with the previous administration, my job was extremely difficult. Um, it, it was a huge burden on us as attorneys and my clients. We had fee increases, we had um, country bans, just at one point, there was a form called an I-944 that added an additional burden on marriage green cards um, as far as what you had to show to get an approval on a marriage green card. Um, not just a marriage green card, uh, but a, um, a petition that's filed inside the United States um, to show that you wouldn't be a burden to the, you know, um, coming in as an immigrant. And that was that took a toll on a lot of clients financially and just emotionally and us as attorneys. And... What I noticed, I noticed my VAWA cases really went up during the pandemic. And that correlation made sense because matters of domestic abuse really skyrocketed during the pandemic. I mean, I, every other call is someone just pleading, I need to get out. What do I do? And it's really heartbreaking. So, and what I also noticed, at least in Minneapolis, I noticed that a lot of my VAWA cases were being moved through the system a lot quicker. So I've been getting a lot of emails from the local office saying, hey, we got a cancellation. Does your VAWA client want to do an interview? I mean, a lot of these emails. So I think they're recognizing that the pandemic brought in a lot of mental health issues and a lot of domestic violence and abuse matters. And I think they're trying to make a concerted effort to move those along quicker. So that's a good thing. Um, But the part that 
that's really clear is there is a lot of incidents of domestic violence, certainly. And I saw that in, in my client intake. And is that, is it like very difficult work? Like, do you ever have like sometimes like step away or just you know, yes. take a day to yourself or is this always a grind? No, it's difficult work. And I'll tell you that. I mean, I've had, I've had clients in my office weeping and I've had to just quickly remind myself that Kiki, you're the attorney. You're here to be strong for them. You can't start crying too, but I have a heart, right? And so I try to find that balance where I'm not like weeping and like crying with them, <laughs> but also letting them know that I am here for you as much as I possibly can as your attorney, um, as someone that you can trust, as, as someone who's really trying to uplift empower and liberate you and get you out of this. But it's really difficult work. It's really difficult work, especially when I have to do their declarations. This is where they tell me everything because unfortunately they have to tell me everything. So I build a strong case because I don't take cases that I don't think are solid. It has to be solid. Certainly not to say that I don't take difficult cases. I do. And vowel cases are difficult, particularly for men, but there has to be something there. And I start to peel the layers, and it, it's hard because people, because what 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 it is, what they bring to you is broken pieces. It's baggage. It's suffering. It's suffering. A lot of suffering, and and it, it, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. And I feel you really need to have like a strong sense. Of, like already, a lawyer needs to have a strong sense of trust with their client. But I feel like in this situation, like you, they really need to trust you, and like you really need to like, have them open up and tell you everything. Absolutely. Abs and that's where and I and I very earlier on I noticed that I could do that. Particularly with the men. They just trusted me and they would tell me everything. I mean, it's there was struggle. A lot of times I struggled in getting it out, but eventually they told me, right? And over time they just trusted me and you know, they, they shared information and they they felt as though I was doing this work to really help them. And I am. I am. I just had a client the other day call. She called my paralegal and said, I don't want to go forward with this process anymore. And so my paralegal called me and I said, okay, well, have her give me a call. And so she called me on Friday and I go, what's going on? She says, well, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I just, I'm not sure what's going on. My, my friend who's going to write an affidavit for me says she doesn't trust lawyers and that, you know, some lawyers just take your money and run with it. And I say, you know what? I understand that. I get that because that happens sometimes. I said, but you have to trust me. You have to. And at the end of the call, she goes, okay, I feel so much better. Thank you so much, Kiki. I'm ready to, to continue this process. And thank you so much for talking to me. She's like, because I felt hopeless. I wasn't sure what to do. Everyone's telling me different things. And I said, whenever you're confused, just call me. That's why I am here. Okay. So I am happy that I am able to kind of, you know, steer them back in the right direction because ultimately this is the best option for them. That's true. So do you find that a lot of your work ends up being like that referral base, like people that you know recommend you to other newcomers, or it's still a lot of it being digital and your, your online, pers like your social media work? Oh, it's a combination of both. Um, I'll say, so I started, I started really going hard on social media this year in January, and certainly they're coming in. You know, they say build it and they'll come. I see it. 
but I also have a lot of referrals and I, the referrals feel the best to me because when the when the potential clients come in and eventually they become clients, they go, oh, such and such person spoke highly of you. They had so many great things to say about you. They said, this is the only lawyer you need to be talking to. <laughs> go and see her. She's so smart. She's so good. She wins the cases. And I go, well, past results do not predict future, but we can certainly talk about what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> so you have people coming to you for things that you don't even do like oh god all i mean all kinds of, <laughs> all kinds of things like the mat the, the attorney the immigration attorney that has magic so so i like referrals feel great and certainly a lot of but the ones from social media by the time they come to me, it's either when they come, I always ask, how did you find me? And they go, well, I watched your video. You sounded like you knew what you were talking about. I'm like, well, that's good. <laughs> and they go, <laughs> and they go, um, I also checked out your Google reviews and I saw your website. So those are things that, you know, they've done their own research, right? In addition to watching a video of me talking about immigration law, they've checked out my website. They looked at Google reviews. Um, and so they're coming in informed. Um, so it's kind of a mix. That's good. And it's, it's not just like locally, right? It's like, I guess, do you see any differences working, I guess, within the different states or is it all pretty streamlined and consistent? Yes, it's streamlined this year. I think mm. one of the silver linings of the pandemic, it forced me to really streamline the process for out of state clients because I'm going to be fully transparent up until before the pandemic. I was like mailing, I was having clients mail stuff to me, right? Like all their documents. I'm happy to say we no longer do that, okay? Um, clients are able to upload. We have a case management system. They can upload all their files either onto Google Docs or um, one of the other software. Everything can happen from a distance and we have a system, we have systems and we have a process. And the pandemic forced me to do that because while I've always represented clients out of state, it was always like, okay, get all your documents together and mail them to me or clients are sending me, you know, page by page by email, one page per email. And I'm just like, wait a minute. I, I, you, you lost me after the fifth email. What page are we on? <laughs> <laughs> then, yeah. I can imagine things getting mailed and like maybe you lost a page and lose the piece. Things get oh, uh, And the mail this year has been not great due to the pandemic. So. I know. I know. So yeah. So no, we, we have a process, we have systems and I am happy to see things moving very efficiently through our process. Um, even like with payments, when clients have to make payments, it was always like, okay, well, mail the check. And, you know, we can't get started till I receive the check and that cash is like, no, now we have online payment, send the invoice, make the payment, let's get started immediately. So we've ironed out the kinks and I am very happy about that. That's good, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yes. So, you know, we're coming up on the end of the interview, so I'm gonna get more broadly into like, yeah, the immigrant experience and just your, you know your thoughts and any advice that you have but one thing i wanted to know is like what do you think people really overlook about the immigrant experience like i don't know i feel like some of the post-arrival stuff gets brushed under the rug especially if like you know the government helps is a third party involved i want to you know as an immigration lawyer close to it I really want to get your perspective yeah so i think people need to see immigrants as humans i mean you know as hard-working resilient there's a reason they've come here i mean certainly 
the immigrant story, it's like a jigsaw puzzle, right? There are different pieces and it's continuously being put together, right? The, the process just kind of keeps going. You're putting the pieces together. And, and at the end, whatever that end is, there's a picture and it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, and, you know, we're not a monolith either. We're all different. We all have different backgrounds. We all have our own story. We're coming from a different place. The push factors are all different for everyone, right? Some people are coming here because they're literally like running away from persecution. Others are coming here because they're just seeking a better opportunity. There's so many different reasons. And one thing that I, I find to be a lot of times dis, disheartening is when there's a language barrier, perceiving that to be less educated. Um, in Sierra Leone, we speak English, so I never really had that issue. You know, I spoke English all my life, but I've seen cases where the client is not, um, not, the, not, the, not necessarily my client, but just like an immigrant does not speak English and they're just dismissed as being um, not as intelligent, not as smart, not as educated. And, and that really, it's, it's a misconception. It's, it's simply just not true. Um, or if there's an, if someone has an accent, deeming them to be not as articulate again, those are things that we need to kind of, we need to reprogram our minds and just recognize that people are coming here because they're, everyone just wants a better life right? for their children, for themselves, for their future generations, and just respecting that and just seeing immigrants for who they are as individuals and not stroking them with a broad brush because you wouldn't want someone to stroke you with a broad brush, would you? So, Yeah. <laughs> 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 that, that was well said. Like every immigrant has a unique experience, a unique journey. It's yeah. You can't just. It's not one size fits all. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think that's what makes that's what makes this country, you know, beautiful in in that sense and rich, and rich in its diversity, the cultures, the perspectives. Because um, everyone is just bringing their own spice, their own flavor, their own sauce, and putting it all together, and it's just beautiful. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's really cool. You can meet people from all over the world and uh, oh, yeah. every country, I feel like. It's one, one good part about this country. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for me, it's really fulfilling work. It's because in the work that I do, I, I, I am really making a difference. And I'm not just saying that, like, I from when they come into my office till the end of the representation, it's a complete transformation. A complete transformation. Um, and it's not all 100% a credit to me. It's me and the client working together. But I am always honored um, to be part of that journey with them and being part of that process with them and to see the end result. Um, that's what keeps me going. Yeah, it seems very fulfilling to be able to you know, get them that freedom, help them you know, push yes. on to the next chapter of their life. Absolutely. Because without freedom, you, I mean, in this country, you got to have your freedom, right? You have to be able to be, you know, to sustain yourself, have that independence to work and not be at the beck and call of someone else, literally telling you, do this or else, give me this or else, you know, that's no way to live. Speaking very broadly, what's, what's the type piece, what's the top piece of advice that you'd have to offer for any incoming immigrant to the United States? I'll say, come here with an open mind. Come here ready to work. You will encounter obstacles. I, you know, coming into this country, there are a lot of, there are a lot of systems and processes that are in place and you just kind of have to, 
you know, get familiar and roll with whatever punches come your way, but remain resilient and remain, um, remain, stay focused on what your goals are, right? Whatever your goals are, whatever you want to accomplish, because really and truly there are, you have unlimited potential here in this country. And I think a lot of that, there are a lot of different factors, but I think a big part of that is what you put into it. So certainly, um, just, just, you know, when you come as an immigrant, stay out of trouble. God, stay out of trouble. <laughs> Avoid police contact. That's huge because that can derail you faster than you know it. I have so many clients that come in and things look good. And I go, what's your, what's your criminal history? And I go, yeah, we can't do this. <laughs> so um, just tr try to be the decent person that you really are. Thank you for that. I think this whole conversation was very insightful. I learned a lot. I hope the viewers and the audience learned as much as I did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Aiden, for having me. I am so thrilled that we were able to do this. I had a great time chatting with you. Um, and I certainly hope I was able to share some gems, as they say, in this hour that we chatted. Um, and yeah, thank you again. This was This was lovely. Of course, Kiki, it was great learning from you. I guess, do you have anything that you want to plug or promote? Oh, certainly. Go and follow my Instagram page. It is Gilman, G-I-L-L-M-A-N underscore immigration. Um, that's my Instagram page. I also have a Facebook page. I share a lot of videos and immigration content. If nothing else, if, you know, if you're looking to um, apply for an immigration relief, I really share a lot of information that gives you insight um, into how the process works. And um, please feel free to reach out to me, schedule a consultation, and I'll be happy to chat with you. You definitely reach out. She knows her stuff. And I, I, I went through the IG page myself, very informative. So thank, thank you. you. <laughs> of course. Thank you, Aiden. Well, thank you so much, Kiki. Have a good one. Absolutely. You too. Have a good one. Bye. Hope you all took down some notes and got a lot from that conversation and you know kept those gems with you that kiki dropped talking with her was honestly amazing i love her energy and the you know the work that she does it's really admirable and i'm i know she's really helping people and fixing lives and we see the story of someone you know they were once in the opposite position probably needing the help of an immigration attorney to speed things along and now you know helping people of various statuses and being a citizen I think it shows how this world can be and how things can just come full circle and really tell a story. I think it's it's amazing when life can do that. But until next time, remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It truly, really does help more than you know. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you know follow us on social media at Factor on every platform. You can also check us out on PushPullFactor.com. Explore the website, click around, you know, do your thing. But of course, thank you and have a good one. <laughs>